Hi. What the fuck is going on? Hmm. It's a little bit worrying that you don't seem to know, considering. Considering? Are those horns? Hmm. Wait. Am I in Jeff Goldblum's house right now? <laughs> what did I take? You are asleep. I, Ember, greatest ever god of fillery, am blessing a visitation of my person on your prone and receptive state. Well, more technically, I, an energetic emanation previously placed here by the great god Ember, have been activated to contact you. Activated? Activated. By a disturbance of great magnitude. Alarms, Majesty, I have emanated to warn you, great ill is afoot. Oh my Ember, you guys, it's season four. Welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And we're here today to talk about episode 401, A Flock of Lost Birds. This is a really special episode for us because here with us today are the high king and queen of the magician's writer's room, John McNamara and Sarah Gamble. John, Sarah, welcome to Physical Kids Weekly. Thank you. Obviously, I'm the high king and he's the high queen. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before we start the interview, we also want to thank our listeners for submitting such great questions. We got close to 30 fan submitted questions uh, for John and Sarah across all channels. There's no way we could possibly get to all or even most of them today but we had a really great time reading through them as we were preparing. And we've tried to include as many of them as possible. We're grateful to have such thoughtful and engaged listeners. So I think without further ado, let's get into them. Sarah, I wanted to start by asking you to tell the story of how you got into TV writing. I hear your experience is a little unique. How I got into TV writing. Um, I was writing screenplays. Um, with a writing partner, Rael Tucker, who has a show on Facebook Watch called Sacred Lies. Um, and uh, we submitted our scripts to different competitions just because we were told that's like a way to maybe get an agent to open the script. And um, we ended up being finalists in Project Greenlight in its second season when it was on HBO 5,000 years ago. And um, from that got an agent, a wonderful agent named Sue Nagel, who said, you know, if you want to um, have steady employment and you want to see your material produced sometime this century, consider staffing on a television show. And then very luckily, our first season trying to get a staffing job, um, we were submitted to John McNamara, um, who happened to be a fan of Project Greenlight. <laughs> so he consented to take a meeting with these two chicks who had never done anything in TV before and were in, like just so green, it's surprising he didn't kick us out of the room. Um, so really John is my entry into the TV world. <laughs> John, is there anything you want to add to that story? Congratulations and condolences. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, I know you were a huge fan of the magician novels, but there must be hundreds of books that you love. What made you decide to bring these ones to television? Uh, I was not a huge fan of the magician's novels. Oh really? Oh. <laughs> no, I had I had actually never heard of them. Sorry, Lev. <laughs> um, I was um, writing and producing a movie with Michael London um, uh -huh. called Trumbo, um, and Michael, uh, I really like Michael. He's 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 a terrific producer, a really lovely guy. He, as I like mm -hmm. to say, um, he's always the adult in the room, uh, then then and sure. now. 
Yeah. And Sarah and I both wanted to do, we were sort of, we'd been developing a bunch of different ideas and we'd sold some stuff to networks and studios uh, that had not been made, but we enjoyed working together. And we brought one of the projects that was kind of semi-dead to Michael's office and he liked the project, but it wasn't quite what he wanted. So we talked about some other ideas and Sarah left and Michael and I were supposed to have a meeting about Trumbo. And Michael said, oh my gosh, I forgot to mention one project that I have that I'm really excited about, and it's this novel, The Petitions. And I'm like, I never heard of it. And he goes, it's a fantasy novel. I'm like, I don't like fantasy. <laughs> he said, well, it's different, though. I think you'd like this. I, you know, but then he sort of knew my taste, and I could be a little bit cranky, but that if he sort of pushed the right button, that he could kind of get my, my inner safe to open up. So he sort of described it, and I was like, oh, that sounds, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's like a super character-driven, really psychologically realistic. So Sarah, by then, was in her car, and I called her from the lobby and mentioned the magicians, and she just went, like, kind of crazy. And oh, so you're the her, big fan. Yeah, I'll let her pick it up from here. Yeah, I had actually read the novels a couple years before the meeting in question, just it came up in my Amazon recommendations because I read a lot of fantasy and speculative fiction and I'm a Harry Potter fan and um, a Narnia fan. And I actually, the first time I read The Magicians, I called my agent and I said, there's no way this is available, but is it available um, to develop for TV? And he was like, no, it's not available. Of course it's not. And at that time I just was like, well, you know, if it goes, if it gets picked up to series, will you submit me to be on staff? Um, and so he was sort of keeping an eye on it and he let me know when that iteration of the development didn't move forward. And, um, so when John called me after that meeting and was like, have you ever heard of this book, the magicians? I'm like, you don't understand. I've been obsessively stalking it for two or three years at least. <laughs> um, and then he was like, eh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you'd write the pilot and I just like produce it or help out, whatever, get coffee. You know, that's kind of how we talk. I'll just get coffee or something. I don't really like fantasy. And I was like, just read it and call me back. Just read it. <laughs> and he, lo and behold, he read it. He called me back. He's like, I have to write this with you. I was like, I know you do. <laughs> um, I'm just glad you agree with me. So, you know, the, my perfect vision, as soon as he said it was, you know, there was the possibility that we could actually do this was that we would do it together because I knew that there were aspects of the story that were just deeply, deeply in my psyche and in my wheelhouse. And there were aspects of the story that reminded me so much of John mm -hmm. that I knew he would get over the fantasy thing and want to write it. What Sarah means is the, be the beast. <laughs> That's not what I mean, but okay. <laughs> what are the he's aspects? He's also like a little bit of a, I mean, he's a little bit of an Elliot and a little bit of a Margot. Mm. Um, but certainly when we were, you know, talking about the pilot, to try to get in the head of Quentin in mm. the pilot, somebody who is, um, you know, he is really trying to solve these questions for himself, but he's also wrestling with his own brain, his own brain chemistry. I think that that's something that John and I talk about a lot mm -hmm. and, and try to, to bring to life in our writing because we have a lot of questions about that too. That's an aspect of being a human being that I think we're both passionate about exploring. So that was something I really wanted us to write together. We're very thankful yeah, to absolutely. you guys for that. Um, and actually, so I want to ask one follow-up. Lev years ago commented to me that the the writers room of the magicians is uh, smaller and more eclectic than most of the writers rooms he's seen. 
how do you choose how do you choose um, new writers? How do you know what you're looking for? Um, yeah, what what do you do that makes it unique? Um, John, I'll I'll start you off with that since I I just want to know what other writers' rooms love his scene. <laughs> I wish I could tell you because <laughs> as far as I know, this is his first TV show uh, produced. So I'd, I'd be curious to ask him where what, what other. Uh, I'll, I'll, next time I talk to him, I'll ask. I'll, I'll pin him on that. <laughs> Good. Um, you know, I think, I think you just over time you develop a kind of a, a sense. It's not really. Um, I don't think it's really scientific. Um, most writers' rooms, in my experiences, are, have been too big. Mm. You tend to kind of hire as many people as your budget will allow. And sometimes with a big studio and a big network, that will be a lot of people. And, and with sci-fi and UCP, it was, I think a smaller budget, which, which ended up being in some ways better for the show because it made us have to really look at like, not only what each writer could do, but what, what could each writer be pushed to do perhaps outside their comfort zone. And so that almost everybody on that staff, the first season and every season, has had to do more than one thing well. You know, you can't just do comedy, you can't just do fantasy, you can't just do thriller, you can't just do horror. you got to kind of do a lot of different things. And some people obviously are stronger at, at, at stuff than other people, and that's why you have a team. But, um, yeah, I, I think that the, the thing that I noticed early on was there was no dead weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, from day one. Um, and we had also just come off a show together that had a very small staff, but there was, again, no dead weight. Everybody was really good. Everybody was kind of could play their position and other positions. And that was kind of in, instructive to me that staffs don't have to be big, mm-hmm. but that they should be, and I don't mean this in a politically correct way at all, but they need to be diverse. Uh, and I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but that's not about race or gender necessarily. It uh, ends up being often about race and gender. But the first thing you want to look at is you want to look at the writing. And scripts are colorblind. All scripts are black and white. So the first thing I look at is, like, who can really do a lot of different things? And Mm -hmm. the more of those people you hire, the smaller the staff then needs to be. And I think the more kind of then everybody is kind of pulling the rope in the same direction, hopefully. That's a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add, Sarah? That's a, that's a big part of it. I mean, you just, you, you, there's no such thing as a perfect batting average. I mean, you hire people that are first and foremost good writers, right? I mean, it's a bit like casting, but I don't think we overthink it too much. That hasn't really, I mean, I'm saying that with a question mark at the end of it because I'm inviting John to disagree, but kind of we just met with people and we both had a feeling. That's the thing about working with a partner um, is that you develop a lot of shorthands and a lot of sort of, um, uh, I don't know, we have kind of a psychic connection at this point, I think. (laughs) Thank God, because the phone will be terrible. (laughs) I know, I'm so bad on the phone, so it's just better Mm -hmm. to contact me telepathically, really. But, uh, you know, we met, it's like, you know, like when we first sat down with Henry Alonzo Myers and this was Mm. in John's garage, it was before we had offices. Um, 
like we were politely trying to wait until he the door had closed behind him to be like we love that guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) wanted to like keep our cool because he was in the room you know and not just be like what was wrong with their showrunners? <laughs> I think Henry got the offer while he was in my driveway. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad about that, too. I uh, we love Henry, and yeah. I, his episodes mm-hmm. are, like, some of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, me too. So the show's relationship to the source material has evolved a lot over the past four seasons. When did you start to feel like you really had the freedom to diverge from your source material? Sarah, why don't you start? I started feeling that when we wrote the first scene of the pilot, because that's not in the, that's not in the books. So that was the first time that John and I, and then John and Lev and I had the conversation about, um, you know, bringing like what it really meant to evoke the spirit of the books on a TV show. And Quentin's depression is more often implied than made explicit in the books. Mm. And so when we said, you know, Lev, I think we want to put this in a mental hospital to start that was really where the conversation began about we want to do things differently to get to the same place because the language is a little bit different. Um, there were certain things, certainly in season one, there were certain things we knew we wanted to do, like go to break Bill South and meet Mayakovsky and turn them into geese to get them to break Bill South, right? Which are just iconic yeah. moments in the book. And from, by the way, also, we knew we wanted to put Margot in the desert mm. from, um, you know, the very, very beginning. So there are certain things that are just like the book, but not exactly like the book. And then everything else is just sort of like we have more space to play around. We have more characters. They are um, played by actors who have certain strengths. And um, again, it's sort of an organic process. But I don't think we ever felt particularly hamstrung by the book. I think we felt like it was this marvelous sort of map and we got to pick lots of roads and explore lots of cities. Do you have anything to add, John? No. Uh, All right. Uh, The next question comes from Elliot. What are the values that guide you when you're writing an episode and what do you hope viewers will take away from the show? John, why don't you start? I don't have any values. (laughs) That's a lie. That's a lie. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think that way, which, which is probably unfortunate. Um, It may be a flaw in my writing and I, and I think it's made up for by those, writers on the staff like Sarah who do have values they want to communicate through through you know the 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 show and the characters but I always just think like what's boring and let's not do that (laughs) it's a good value I'm not that complicated you know and I don't I also fundamentally push against the idea that television or movies or books or plays in any way change affect or positively or negatively, society. Hmm. I don't think violence in TV makes violence in life. Um, but by the same token, I think that when you're portraying some aspects of life, like mental illness, you have to be, number one, completely authentic, as authentic as you can be, and not bullshit and not skip over stuff and not make it seem like you know, therapy is this instant cure for any problem and now it's all going to be fine. And when you're dealing with trauma, you have to be highly aware that a show could trigger someone's trauma, which is why we try to be very, um, mostly with Sarah's guidance, very, um, I think, consistently, um, you know, aware that when we do a suicide episode, we have a suicide hotline number or, 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 or whatever it is. But fundamentally, do I believe that um, 
let's say a movie like Trumbo, which which had, I think, you know, was was about a character who who stood up to a very very corrupt government. Do I think anyone walked out of that movie more likely to stand up to the United States government and fight corruption? Well, let's look at this. The movie came out in 2015, and Trump was elected <laughs> 2016. <laughs> So probably not. Couldn't have had less of a societal. Not enough. <laughs> yeah, it's, movies movies reflect; they don't change, mm-hmm. in yeah. my opinion. So that for me, that weight is off my shoulders. I just want to tell a good story, um, with the idea that also that I think good stories do affect people; they do change people. You know, I've been very changed by movies and books and plays that have really affected me. Uh, and I'm highly aware of the fact that people are giving us their time when they have a lot of choices and a lot of places they could be. And so we better be really entertaining and honest in mm-hmm. what we're doing because it takes maybe two or three bullshit episodes and people are like, bye-bye, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And so that's a long, long way of saying I just think the object is to entertain, and if at the same time you can illuminate or possibly, possibly slightly, maybe educate a little bit um, or just create awareness to something, that that's certainly, that's a, that's a bonus, you know. But first and foremost, don't be boring. <laughs> don't be boring. I watch TV. The, the TV I drop out of is the TV that bores me. And usually it's because it's a show or a movie or a book or whatever that's telling me something I already know in a way that's incredibly dull. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. name a lot of stuff right now. And they, like, don't cover Dominic Virgis and kittens at all, ever. <laughs> no, no. the kid made the scene. They don't gouge <laughs> out Summer Bishel's eye. They don't, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, like I think that, that, that the only purpose is to entertain but then all these other things can then flow into entertainment that are <laughs> that are that are psychological or societal or you know educational. But if you're just gonna like sit there and say, "Here are my values. Here are my feelings about society," you're gonna pretty soon be hearing crickets. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that's a really interesting point, and especially like the show this season really is sort of tackling a lot of themes that are like politically relevant. Yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, Trumbo's about the McCarthy era, um, and uh, that's pretty political too. So, so how do you entertain when you're dealing like re- when you're dealing with really deep and dark political topics? Um, yeah, especially like in an era like now where people have just gotten so exhausted by the news. Yeah. Well, I, I'll let Sarah pick this up. I think I think that it's actually dark political topics are intrinsically dramatic. That's a good thing, you know. Um, I remember when we were dealing with the um, the fairies, um, you know, that was incredibly interesting to me because I immediately could find historical analogies for who they were that then made them very clear to me how to then kind of dramatize them and 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 work with the other writers to to, to kind of clarify them and. And and um, and it, it definitely the fairies were born of of the times we're living in, you mm-hmm. know, which are which are not 
as what, what is the famous Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. Mm-hmm. And we live in very interesting times. Definitely do. Uh, do you have anything to add, Sarah? John and I talk about this all the time about not preaching and about not thinking we're going to necessarily like move the needle in some immensely personally gratifying way um, on a societal level. Like certainly season four, which has a lot about authoritarianism in it it, and the rise of authoritarianism that could be construed as a, a political commentary, but really it's very personal. I mean, my ground rule that I like to try to remind the room of is to keep it personal, to have the show ask the questions that the writers themselves are asking. Like, mm. it's not like John and I have come to some conclusion about how to solve authoritarianism and we're going to present it to you as season four of The Magicians. John and I and the whole writing staff have a series of questions and concerns and like personally terrifying nightmares oh. about. Right. So I, I like to write about things I don't really know the answer to. And um, and, you know, as somebody who I, I consider myself to be like kind of a horror writer in my soul, I am immediately attracted to any story that um, is scary to almost everyone that has a, a, a sort of a thread of universal terror in it that could happen anywhere to anyone. And well-meaning societies have turned incredibly strict and punitive and authoritarian um, over and over and over again throughout human history. And it's something that's in the news now. People who study this historically are saying, you know, there are some earmarks that say that our quote unquote free society is moving in directions that, you know, thinking people should be considering carefully. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer, fuck, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that it terrifies me. My own parents are political refugees. So we keep it kind of low to the ground and personal. What does this mean to Dean Fogg? What does mm-hmm. this mean to Zelda, the head librarian, who is um, an immensely fair and practiced master magician, who's probably been like meditating since before any of us were born, doesn't have a natural thirst for power, but yet, She's been giving this, given this impossibly huge job. She's part of an institution that now is in the regulation business. Mm-hmm. And how does a well-meaning, well-educated woman like Zelda mm-hmm. become part of something that could be construed as evil, that is unfair to many people? It's the Hannah so, Arendt finality yeah. to evil kind of story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I've always loved like just how raw and honest people can be when it comes to fiction. Like I think fiction is one of people's like easiest way to be honest with other people Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've always loved that and like that's what drives me towards writing myself um I I love what you guys do with the show um I love the books for that same reason it's so like honest and grounded but it's never preachy Uh, and I've always I've always loved that that's because like I don't really I, I don't think either of us really want to be held up as role models without any flaw. You know what I mean? Like I can't really preach to you because I'm definitely not better than you. you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, I can share an anecdote of shitty judgment from my past. That's most of what the show is, really. <laughs> uh, John, it's common knowledge that you're the driving force behind the show's musical episodes. Matt asked <laughs> What, what is it that you love about musical theater, and what are some of your favorite plays? Um, I think what I love about musical theater is that it, it's, it's intrinsically American. It was, it was invented in America, and it was this kind of 
the history of it is is this sort of accidental amalgam of well, there's actually a, there's a there's a story that may be apocryphal, but it's somewhat analogous to the magicians, and that is that there was apparently a play, a melodrama in the 1840s that was just not working. It was just this big, long, bad play, and they were dying. And apparently, the the producer said, "Well, let's just put a ballet in," <laughs> and they did. And suddenly people liked it. And so then he said, well, what if we put some singers in? And they did. <laughs> and for like decades and decades, that's what musical theater really was until um, Oklahoma really was the first show by Rodgers and Hammerstein to make the show about this character is going to sing about what he or she wants or feels. And this song could not exist anywhere else but this show in this moment. And that created, I think, a new art form um, that was not a play, that was not an opera, that was not a concert. It was this new thing. And so what I think I've always liked about musical theater, what I like about some uh, musical movies, although I think in general they tend to be a little less successful, I could go on divert as to why I think sometimes movies, musicals don't work as well, because our suspension of disbelief is harder to achieve in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but why they work when they work is for the exact same reason that a Shakespeare soliloquy works in Shakespeare. You go under the surface kind of effortlessly and in a way that's incredibly pleasing to the ear. Hmm. And um, so that if you're watching a really good musical like Evan Hansen or Come From Away or Sweeney Todd or A Little Night Music or um, How to Succeed in Business, you're seeing and hearing feelings that would otherwise remain unknown to you. So that's kind of then, I guess, how it started on The Magicians, totally by accident, totally by accident. And I don't want to bore you with, like, every musical we did, except to say that in, in each case from seasons one through four, it's been about trying to get inside of a character in a moment when that character might otherwise be mute or might mm. otherwise not tell the truth about how they're feeling. Mm. Starting with starting with Taylor Swift. That really was how he was feeling in episode four of season one. He really had this song in his head and it really was a kind of a cry for help. Um, and it worked. It's, in other words, it was, it was a successful plot device to help get Quentin out of the situation that also revealed that he is a, uh, like I am, a very big Taylor Swift fan. Which, <laughs> which is, you get teased a lot as a straight white male when you're a Taylor Swift fan. Let's, let's be honest. It's not, it's not like a lot of other 57-year-old guys are going like, hey, you want to go see the Taylor Swift concert? Because it's kind of creepy. My father-in-law, my father-in-law, who is in his seventies, um, is a very, very big Taylor Swift fan, and go. he okay. got tickets to her last tour for him and um, my niece, who's about ten. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure they were like seventy percent for him and thirty percent for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just think she's very talented. I honestly, I just think it's like I just think there was that great SNL skit. Mm. Um, a couple years ago, it was like, what was it called? Swiftyitis of all these characters hearing a Taylor Swift song and like suddenly like just going crazy and not being able to, you know, not being able to unhear the song. Mm. Um, but that was 
to me, it was about character. It was like what was in Quentin's head, and then that extended through season two with Les Mis, and season three was season three was the first really fully integrated musical we did. Where we we built the story around a character's desire to live in a world where music was kind of predominantly entertaining and 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 sort of freeing, um, and that final number under pressure becomes sort of this key that unlocks the door to his psyche and, and, and also literally unlocks the door to get them out of this um, pocket world. So I think that with each season, we just try to follow that Rodgers and Hammerstein model, which is what do we learn about the characters through music that we would not otherwise know? And I think we do it, we, we've tried it again in, in what will be episode 10 of season four. Ah, you, you answered one of our listeners' questions that we didn't <laughs> didn't have time to work in. Yep. Um, Sarah, it, it's maybe a little less well known that you've written quite a bit of erotica, and you have stories in in like two best American erotica series. Is that right? Uh huh. Um, what makes that genre interesting to you as a writer, and how is erotic literature different from maybe some of the stereotypes people have in their head? Well, um, good li- to start with your the second part of your question, if it's good, it's good. It doesn't really matter what genre it is. And the fact that we separate stories that have sex in them out into a separate genre, it doesn't mean erotica is a different thing. It just means our culture is real uptight. <laughs> and the existence of sex means we have to categorize things differently. Like those stories, I didn't write them to write erotica. I wrote a short story for another reason. And then there's sex in it. Mm. Um, and because of that, it, it's, you know, collected in anthologies of erotica, which is fine. That's cool. Um, but, uh, it goes back to the same thing for me, which is that I, I write to figure things out. <laughs> um, I have a lot of questions, um, and a lot of things that I want to figure out about sex and why people do and don't connect and what the, why is that such a huge power in our lives? And if I were a scientist, I might run some big rigorous study, Um, But I'm a writer, so I set characters up on a road and I see what they do. Mm And yeah, I mean, I always am. The only thing I'm embarrassed about is that I feel like those stories are a little tame um, to even be collected in erotica. Like nothing nearly shocking enough happens for Mm. people to be running out. Like, I wonder what super, super dirty shit Sarah wrote. I'm like, there's dirtier shit on the magicians, honestly. There's like not, and not a single, not a single person comes on the ceiling, like like while not comes, like, not a single person comes while on the ceiling, flying on the ceiling in any of their short stories. So I suggest watching the pilot and the magicians, and you'll at least see two people, you know, fucking while they're flying. So. <laughs> Alrighty, so this one actually is for you, John. Um, it comes from David Reed. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> when Here's my answer. You're fired, David. <laughs> oh! <laughs> well, it is, when will Humbledrum be made a series regular? <laughs> when I am six feet under Philorian dirt. <laughs> I almost did an actual spit take. Bring that bear back, and you're going to be a thousand percent responsible for the goddamn bear. <laughs> you really do sound I'll like show parents Dave right now. No, we'll get I'll you a dog. But... Like, no. he, he really is a dog with a bone. <laughs> it's really one of my favorite things about working with him every day is that like when he has an idea, it's just going to keep 
coming up in different forms because that's the way his creative mind works. And the, to a certain extent, that's true of all of us. It's just, I, I'm bringing up, up about David because um, Humble Drum has become the symbol of that, but also because um, some of the very best stuff on the show has happened just because like certain things get in his head and they won't leave. Yeah, So, true. Um, you know, I'm grateful yeah. Humble Drum is not one of them. I mean, <laughs> you know, but like he does have a certain like deep storytelling affinity for bears that like, I don't question it. I don't understand it, but I don't question it. It's like, if I that's totally, your thing, I I'm question into it. it. I question it. I criticize it. <laughs> I, it worries me. It troubles me. This is why you make such a good I, team. I, 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 can I you tell for, that this is like... family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you tell that we're like a really friendly, loving room, but we're like, we also take the piss out of each other constantly. Like, you shouldn't go in there with a super thin skin. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I can tell. David, David is crafting his revenge against me right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so we should move on to the episode. Sure. Uh, I'm going to do a quick recap for listeners first. So, yeah, here's what happened. Kimber, a.k.a. Julia, gets an invitation to break bills where she bonds the entrance exam but gets offered a seat anyway when Fogg spies her true identity. Sam, a.k.a. Katie, chases down a criminal who turns out to be a hedge witch. When he tells her she's a witch too, she tracks down Janet, a.k.a. Margot, Isaac, a.k.a. Josh, and DJ Hansel, a.k.a. Penny, and they all try to figure out what's going on with help from Marina. Uh, meanwhile, the monster, a.k.a. Please Don't Be Dead Elliot, and Brian, a.k.a. Quentin, take a break from their playdate, a.k.a. Murder Spree, to get ice cream. Oh, and Alice is stuck in the library with Santa Claus while Ember's divine emanation is off playing with a bunch of kittens. Did I miss anything, Danny? I think you got it all. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure. Okay, I so... totally forgot half of this. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's why it's my job to do the recaps. <laughs> so. Yeah, good. Before we get into the weeds, Danny, what did you think of the premiere? No pressure, you know, being around John and Sarah. Yeah, I wrote it, but, like, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. It's a great start. It's definitely a callback to the pilot in a lot of ways, mm. um, mm-hmm. but also completely different. Uh, you just meet everybody again. Like, their alter egos are, are very interesting. Um, I really love Katie's. I love Katie being a cop. Yeah. Um, and I love the callback to Santa Claus because I always remember that episode with Katie Finley and she was on it and she was like, oh, yeah, like I took the the ring from Santa Claus. And Penny's mm. just like, Santa Claus is real. And <laughs> it seemed at the time to be a trick, but then it, mm. it, ha- it happens to be real. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good one for all the people who are wondering where that where the uh, the witch from season one went. Right. We don't. It sounds like you don't forget anything. I don't. We try not to. The witch? <laughs> what? The what? Hot <laughs> <Not> witch. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I agree with Danny. I thought this episode was so much fun. And like speaking, like speaking of things that call back to the first episode, that scene at Break Bills where Todd is like on the on the dais uh, <laughs> greeting Julia. It's mm-hmm. just like that perfect callback to that first scene where Quentin comes in. I also really like the idea of Todd being like the person that Julia looks up to. <laughs> There's something so funny about that. Um, and I mean, the kitties, I can't. <laughs> I, I like did a literal spit take when uh, the first time I saw the first time I saw Dominic Burgess covered in kittens. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to get 
into and point out was um, there's there's a bunch of unusual pairings, and I found it really interesting that there's uh, that the the characters who we've known for so long not only have they like lost their memories and they have new identities, mm. but like there's a whole new shadow cast playing alongside them, and sort of so there's like two there's Julia and Kimber, and they look different, and Katie and Sam, and they mm-hmm. look different. Um, mm-hmm. And I just found that to be such an interesting choice because, like, obviously it would be easier to not hire a whole separate cast. So, um, John, mm. can you tell us what motivated that decision? I can't, but Sarah can. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I think it was that when we really started talking in the writer's room about how to make an airtight identity spell of the type that Fog casts on them, we realized that having them with their regular faces was not the smartest of him. And then immediately we realized, well, that's going to be really hard. Um, And I remember the whole time we were breaking the story. At a certain point, I sat down and really thought about it. And I thought, okay, I think we can figure this out in a way that's going to be clear, that they have these glamours and then they are the real person, right? And that will be able to um, essentially like the me that day thought about future me who had to write the script and was just like, fuck her, (laughs) she'll figure it out. But, um, you know, like we had this baseline feeling that it might work. And then um, as soon as the script came out, everyone was really worried. I remember there was a day when production was rightly like, are you sure this is going to make any kind of sense? But I remember um, that very first day that the script came out, Chris Fisher, um, our producing director, he called me and he was like, I totally get it. I have all these ideas. Can't wait to talk to you about it. And then from that point on, I didn't worry at all because it felt awfully like Chris Fisher's problem. Right, John? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite pairings in this episode is the Alice and Santa Claus pairing. Um, and I mm. love, like Danny mm. said, right? Like he's not played as a joke. He's played with depth. Um, and mm-hmm. he appears in this moment where he can give Alice something that she needs and no, when no one else is able to. Like he reminds her that she's a good person despite the mistakes that she's made. And for mm-hmm. me, like it's especially nice for the audience to have that reminder uh, we talk about this a lot, but, like, there are so many haters who, like, pile on anytime any female character in the show does anything that isn't, like, purely good and selfless. Like, I just remember this in, was it season one or season two with Julia? And then... Yeah, it's constant with Julia. <laughs> right. And, like, we've seen it with Alice for the entire last season. And it's really nice to have a mm-hmm. character on the show who has, like, actual moral authority as much as, like, Santa Claus can have moral authority remind Mm. everyone that women can be flawed and still good. Hmm. I mean, we're, we're, listen, we're not going to single-handedly take on all of patriarchy and win making a show for (laughs) sci-fi, but we can just be like, you know what? Fuck the paradigm. Like, yes, people, as soon as a woman has um, agency and makes a, a choice that is born of, you know, inexperience or taking her best shot or being outmatched by her enemy or whatever that is, somebody is going to be like, well, ugh, bad bitch, right? So mm. on this show, we just are like, we're not, we're just not playing by those rules. Because if we did, every female character on the show, and that's like half the show, would be just boring as death. I mean, it's not... It's, you know, it, whatever inherent misogyny... Can you tell I get fired up about this, by the way? <laughs> yeah, we, like, we actually have like a follow-up for you on this, so... <laughs> I, I, just, I mean, I happen to be the woman on the call who's talking, but the, I think John would say the same thing, which is, you know, anytime somebody asks a question of likability, 
Um, and that usually is a question that's asked about female characters. That is a great sign that you should double down on what you're doing with that character Mm -hmm. because it means that they're acting like an actual human being and that you haven't fallen into some conventional trope that's been done so many times that it's canonized. Um, and you know, Alice never seemed bad to me. She seemed um, like she was out of her depth. She seemed like she was trying to solve a problem that might not be solvable by somebody like her. And she seemed like she was doing her best and she was making unpopular choices. So uh, I don't know what point I have to make about that besides just that, (laughs) right? I don't know. What point am I trying to make, John? (laughs) I really feel like the show is lacking one thing. Okay. And that is really beautiful women saying to really entitled white men, be careful, Bob. <laughs> Please. So dangerous. I haven't done that in a long time. Maybe ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bob. Please don't yeah. go to the haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> Could you do that voice for the rest of the episode? <laughs> we noticed that, um, you know, you're very... You love to write flawed women. You love to write strong women, Sarah. Um, and we just, we can, we've all been watching you. I think everyone's watched you at this point. According um, to Netflix, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, why is it so important for you as a writer and producer to show off your character's flaws? I don't even think about it that way. Personally, I just like to write characters and I'm, to me, it's about like, you, you can feel it in your gut when you're getting at something honest in a scene um, with a character because it feels a little uneasy and you worry that maybe the scene just took a turn somewhere really bad and terrible. And it maybe even gives you a little feeling of fear, like someone's going to read this and think it's about you. You know, anytime it um, s- rings a personal little alarm bell in my, um, you know, like little personality, <laughs> um, <laughs> as I'm writing, then I'm like, okay, I have to do this more. And that has never been divided by gender for me. And maybe I don't, I don't know. And I'd be super curious to hear your answer about this too, John, but I, I do always say that women who are writers, we have always had to be really, really great at writing male characters or we'd be completely fucking unemployable because most characters are men. Um, in movies and on TV. So it has never been an option for women writers to be like, I'm going to specialize in writing women because there's just not enough work. Um, I mean, as we achieve, uh, you know, um, authority in our careers and as we're able to pick projects, sure, we can pick projects with lots of cool chicks in them, but um, it's only just a certain kind of male storyteller who has the luxury of writing, oh my God, be careful fighting the demon, Bob. (laughs) you know um the rest of us have to write three-dimensional characters of both genders so you know I don't know I don't know if I'm really answering your question except to say um I try to write each character honestly and I have a particular affinity for stories that have crazy high concept elements like magic is real or he's a nice guy in a bookstore but he's also potentially a serial killer um (laughs) But I like those stories when they're grounded, when the characters are um, recognizable. And I, I mean, I like I like it when within that world, it's like a world you otherwise recognize and could be down the street from you. So probably the stuff that you're asking about is an outgrowth of that. Um, I don't know. John, you're a dude. Tell us about <laughs> pretty shit. <laughs> well, I really 
Just see the world through Bob's eyes. <laughs> and when a, when, when a woman says to Bob, be careful, Bob, I think it says a lot about Bob. It does, right? <laughs> he must be a hero because she's super attractive. And if she <laughs> wants him to be okay, then so wait, probably going, we should... Going back to David Reed. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is actually going to be a compliment. So, David, you might want to turn the sound down. <laughs> One of my absolute favorite moments in the entire show, the entire series was the episode about um, Penny and Hyman, Be the Penny. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love Hyman. David, David just, like, pierced through, like, all the kind of, like, layers of decades of movie and television storytelling by having this character from the 1920s <laughs> literally say... I just love following a white male protagonist. It's just, Brenton <laughs> is the best. And it just made me actually stop and think like, holy shit, that really is the history of 20th century drama, mostly, and comedy, is, is, is this white male perspective on things. Mm-hmm. And this character from the 1920s is sort of stuck in that, and that Penny is not a, you know, a white male, and, and is kind of both intrigued and totally offended by this, I think said a lot about what we were trying to do on the show without wanting to get on the soapbox and preach. And in, in my case, not even, I think, consciously. I think you know, sort of unconsciously I get pulled into this world where I have the, at first, the sort of, it sort of was shocking and then it was thrilling and then it was um, challenging to constantly try to see the world through 10 different points of view that are different genders and, and different races and, and different sexual orientations, and to really have to look at the world through those eyes. Because I don't really feel as if, as a writer, I'd ever had to do that before, Honest, quite honestly. Most of my work has been... In the white male oeuvre? <laughs> You know, it goes both ways without talking about this for 10 hours on your podcast. <laughs> I will just say that there's, um, there's an episode this season. I don't want to give up way too much, but I will just say that Margot goes through some shit in this episode. And John and Mike Moore wrote the episode. And there's a lot about Margot that feels really personal and close to home for me. Um, she's not an autobiography, but she um, there are things about her that I really relate to. And in this episode, the requirement was to peel back some layers we've never peeled back before. This is really about that. And um, lo and behold, two guys, two white guys are writing this episode. And, um, and I had like such strong opinions about <laughs> how to get deeper. And, um, you know, it is really uh, commonplace in uh, the structure of a TV show for either you know, for upper level writers, but especially showrunners to take a script over and do a final gloss, a final polish. And John and I both did that a lot in early seasons and do so less as, you know, people get better at writing the show and get closer in tone to everybody else. And, um, but I thought, God, if there ever was a time that I would want to get in there and like make sure every little new, and then I stopped myself and I thought this really goes both ways. If we're saying that everybody should be able to write everybody and everybody is in this process and I'm not specializing in high kings who are women um, and John is not specializing in the, you know, that's not happening. I just, I didn't, I didn't rewrite a word in that script. I was really fucking hard on them the whole time, I think. (laughs) 
It would be fair to characterize him. John is grinning. Right <laughs> People can't see it, but he's grinning. He's like, yeah, you were kind of bitchy. Um, but, I, you know, I was really hard on the script. And um, I threw some monologues back at them to ask them to write them again. But I was determined not to write it. I just thought there's some, I don't know. It's, I, I mean, I wish I had a better sentence to explain why I felt this way. I just felt like they should be able to get there. They should be able to get there in a way that makes every woman who feels a little bit like Margot really feel that in their gut. Or like, why are we making a show like The Magicians at all? If, you know, only like a girl on the show would be able to write that monologue. Well, and you talked about TV not changing the world, but right, like I think taking that approach where you are mentoring a male writer to just like kind of forcing them to go back and see from a different perspective over and over again until they get it right, like that is something that at least changes a few, like at least changes those writers' minds and they'll take that to whatever show they go next. So, do you love that? I was mentoring you, John. You see? <laughs> <laughs> I'm your mentor now. <laughs> what are, what are, what are the notes that you put in the margin was be careful, John. <laughs> and I knew what that meant. I knew what that meant. <laughs> All of feminism was on my skinny little shoulder. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. So we should make sure that we talk about Sam slash Katie and Janet slash Marco. I love all the references that we've had in the show to Margot's other identity as Janet. We've had that reference in season two as well. Um, And Janet feels like the alter ego that's most like the real person she's taking over. Yeah, she's she's really dominant and in charge. And one of the things that I noticed in this episode and the next episode that I won't talk about that specifically is just that I think she really dresses in a way that Margot would dress like too. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you both mentioned in other interviews that Margot goes through this big transformation, that we're going to do some of the uh, Janet in the desert stuff um, from the magician's land. Without spoiling anything, is there anything that you can tell us about that? It's the musical episode. (laughs) All that and musical numbers, too. (laughs) All right, that's fair enough. And the first number is, be careful, Elliot. <laughs> I'm enjoying this meme. I, I can tease something from um, from the first episode that'll that, there's a little window into what's going to happen this season. That's about Katie mm. because um, Katie is a, she actually is a sort of character. She's probably the closest thing we had when we started to the "Be Careful Bob" character. Mm-hmm. In that mm-hmm. she was um, conceived as Penny's girlfriend, right. and. Um, and then she was Julia's um, kind of best friend, right? She was she was conceived as a sort of sidekick character, and a couple of things happened. One is that she just kept being amazing, and we kept her on the show. And then also, like, I mean, Jade is not really born to be a sidekick forever, you know, <laughs> Jade Taylor. Um, but we consciously were thinking about this. Honestly, one of the reasons that Penny Forty died is because we were like we can't keep doing this to Katie, <laughs> you know, um, she can't, we cannot be the kind of show we are and just have this, this woman on the show who sort of exists to be the girlfriend. And mm-hmm. granted, she, she's doing it in a very, you know, 2018 kind of way, but we were pretty honest with ourselves about that, that we wanted to just open the door to play all new colors for her unencumbered by her love relationship with a man. Her first glimpse into this really happens as Sam Cunningham because Sam Cunningham is, she is the star of her own story. 
She's kind of a lone wolf. She's super capable. She would be, um, you know, the marquee name in the movie. And, (laughs) you know, and and we've really been, uh, we kind of delved deeply into like, what is the DNA of Katie? Why does she put herself into sidekick roles? Why does she put herself into girlfriend roles? It makes sense. We know this from her mother, right? Even, I mean, if we're going to be armchair psychologists, Hmm. there's a lot of reasons she does, but it's time for her character to question that in herself this season. And um, your first glimpse is in this first episode, the way that she's acting with Janet. And then, you know, later, should she get her identity back, dot, 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 right? Then, you know, this is really Katie's um, next journey as a person is like, how do I become the center of my own story? Hmm. I'm kind of laughing because it's like, it's almost like you fridged ah, the boyfriend yes. instead of the girlfriend. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. It's so nice to see that, like, stuck the, <laughs> stuck the man in the refrigerator for once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll take that. I'm into that. Sure. Be careful, Be careful Katie. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, right? <laughs> okay, so um, we're we're. I think uh, Danny and I are going to have to do a separate companion for some more of the episode stuff. But before we head into fashion, I do want to do some like rapid fire favorite moments of the episode. Don't think too much. Don't explain too much. Just say whatever like springs to mind. Danny, you first. What are your favorite bits from this episode? Kittens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Todd always. Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. Uh, Jimmy's. I love the Jimmy's sprinkles comment. <laughs> so funny. And then he's just like, you <laughs> All right, John, you next. Favorite moments? Uh, I gotta repeat kittens. Um... <laughs> I also love the moment when um, I just love Janet and her assistant. <laughs> and there's actually a lot more that we had to cut because just for time, but it was just, I love those scenes. I think it's, you know, it it's not one moment, but it's just getting every, it's, it's the chance to see every actor get to do a, either a completely different version of themselves, like Arjun playing... <laughs> Uh, Hansel, or do like a slightly different version of themselves, like what Quentin, like, like what um, Jason does with with Brian Quentin. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian's very close to Quentin, but it, actually Quentin is far braver than Brian. And so it's interesting to see, you know, a, a character who's been the lead of the show play an absolute abject coward. <laughs> I just love that, and I thought Jason did it beautifully. <laughs> All right, Sarah, your turn. Um, I third the kittens. <laughs> um, and also uh, just the existence of DJ Hansel. <laughs> 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 uh, and um, Isaac's reaction to DJ Hansel. And then uh, getting to recreate the opening of the pilot mm-hmm. this season and getting to think about what a mind fuck that would be as you tune in and you're like, am I meeting the new Quentin of the season? Like what's happening right now? That was really, that was fun. Um, and then I will put a little asterisk on that and tell you that it's really fun. It was really fun for Chris Fisher, our director, because we shot that scene with Jason Ralph in New Orleans and we asked him to recreate uh, it in Canada. So, <laughs> um, so it was not without its challenges. But um, those, are, those are my favorite. That and, you know, like um, finding a way to put an eye patch back on summer for a minute. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Fashion? 
Um, before we get too much into the details, I just wanted to say, like, fashion is such a huge part of world building in The Magicians that I'm really curious, how involved are the two of you in aspects of the show, like, costuming? I'm more, I'm a, I'm a bit more in the weeds on it day to day, but I have to say, anytime it's a suit, I throw it right to John, because he's such a sartorialist, and, um, and I don't, I just, I can't look at a lapel and know what John knows, and I don't even try but all of what you're saying is a testament to Magali, who mm-hmm. has been with the show since the pilot. She's a mm-hmm. genius. Um, and she signed up to do a show about millennial magicians where she would get to be like a little creative and heightened with clothing that you mostly can find in a store that exists in third dimensional reality. And as time went on, more and more of the show took place in worlds that did not have Neiman Marcus. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she's been just... Never a complaint, never a we can't afford it. Just I have this um, book that I want you to look at that has references from 13 different cultures. And that's where we're starting with Fen today. Um, So uh, so that's just a complete pleasure. And um, she always provides a bunch of options and she always puts a little extra flourish in for us to discuss. And so. Um, yeah, I take the, uh, just to back up to your actual question and stop just, um, uh, bragging about how lucky we are to have the costume department that we have. I think it's so important because TV is the visual medium and because, um, costume is so much of, I think how many actors get into a character as well, um, that it's, uh, it, it really, you cannot underestimate the importance. So, um, while our, I think for John and me, our general philosophy is to find people who are excellent at what they do and pretty much let them do it. Don't micromanage them. Um, I do look at the costumes for every single episode and do ask questions and do make suggestions and, um, you know, mostly just get to view their slides with pleasure. Awesome. For another one that we want to ask you is, uh, how different did you want each glamoured character's style to be from that of their alter ego? Dude, depending on the character. Like, obviously, like, um, Katie slash Sam, very. Mm-hmm. Ryan slash Quentin, not so much. <laughs> Janet, Margo, almost indecipherable. <sighs> Although, you know, we dialed... I remember having long conversations dialing in, like, the fashion editor version thereof. Even mm-hmm. with her, there are a couple things. The color palette is different than what Margo usually reaches for, yeah, some of it. Like, and- yeah. yeah, I remember because <laughs> that was another one that remember I sent all of the Sam Cunningham photos to you, John, and I was like, you've written more detectives than I have. Does this do you believe this? <laughs> um, like, hair pull back. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, DJ Hansel was just pure. I mean, there was nothing that wasn't pure pleasure about the creating DJ Hansel um, down to like getting to pick his vape pen. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say one of my. Yeah. One of my favorite just little fashion touches from this episode is the uh, the monster wearing the "This is my happy shirt" shirt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's more to come for you. I mean, the, that monster thinks novelty t-shirts are fucking hilarious, <laughs> and when he sees one, he just takes it. So, um, part of what the you know every few episodes when you know a, sh- a shirt gets so crusty and bloody that it probably falls right off i mean he has to get another one that yeah. was an opportunity for the writers to kind of pitch on um what's the next shirt so there are some really good ones we made them all in-house um the costume department designed them um based on just the crazy crazy ideas that the writers threw at them <laughs> danny what were your yeah. favorite fashion bits from this episode I, I pretty much always have said this since the beginning, but I love what Julia, well, I guess. <laughs> of course you love what Julia wears. <laughs> and I'm sure like 
<laughs> I think Stella is probably very happy that she got a change of wardrobe for a little bit. Yeah, it was it was nice to see her in some lighter colors. And I, I'm going to say, like, right after that episode, I started looking for that necklace <laughs> online. Oh, really? <laughs> mm. I just love it. I mean, like, I don't, I wear hardly anything in the way of, like, jewelry or accessories. Um, but necklaces are, like, the one thing uh, that I that I like always wear and that I change up regularly. Um, I have this, this necklace that like my mom had made from a brooch that like lost some stones for me. And it's like a sapphire in the shape of the Superman crest. And I wear it to like Ooh. every job interview. <laughs> That's a good mom. Yeah, she does. She does. Okay. <laughs> I'm all about the lucky amulets too. And Magali does that for the characters. Yeah, we've heard. That are meaningful for them that they wear repeatedly and you'll see those on some of them are subtle they're like a little bracelet or it's obvious like the magnifying glass that's worn around the neck of the head librarian but um yeah she always she always gives her characters a little lived in touch like that something that's not that doesn't look like you could have gotten it today yeah yeah okay so one last question we're gonna ask this to both of both of you but john i'm gonna pitch it to you first um we usually ask this to actors but we thought it would be fun for you too whose wardrobe would you steal from the show so easy I actually helped design Penny's library uniform. <laughs> oh, with the uh, the page uh, the page edges on the page corners on the shirt. Yeah, but mainly I helped design the suit, which is based shamelessly on Cary Grant's suit from the movie North by Northwest. Yes, <laughs> of course it is. Oh, I can't believe I didn't see that. Which is considered by a lot of film and fashion fans to be the the greatest male movie star suit ever in terms of like <laughs> cut and fit so if Arjun and I, Arjun's a little bigger than I am um, but I would steal that and have it cut down <laughs> good one what about you uh, Sarah Elliot Elliot's <laughs> uh, a popular one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Margot obviously has an incredible, endless, magical, sexy wardrobe. But I actually think the clothes that would look the best on me are Elliot's. Um, I'm really feeling the menswear moment that we're in. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, I would go back and like, especially some of that early season stuff that's sort of subversively preppy. Um, I could, I could get into that and see what it did to my entire personality. I could get into that. <laughs> You should totally, like, the next award show or, like, any red carpet event you do, you should totally, like, steal one of Elliot's outfits and wear it. <laughs> Get the vest, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, um, I think we're done with fashion for now, so I'm going to move us on to MVPs. Uh, we've just started the season, and already I have, like, such a hard time with MVPs. <laughs> but I think for this episode, I'm going to give it to Dominic Burgess and the kittens. If for no other reason than, like, okay, he booped a cat on the nose, and it made me laugh so hard that I, like, I literally spit out the water I was drinking when I saw that scene. <laughs> Danny, what about you? I think I have to give mine to uh, Jade. I think she did a really good job, and I feel mm. like she's actually kind of really, like, the focus of the episode if not her then like summer summer did a really great job too yeah, she did. um and there's just them as a pairing together like i love seeing them on screen together even if it technically wasn't them mm -hmm. yeah, yeah there are there are actually i think there's a lot of great performances but but rather than okay rather than get back into it myself show parents sarah is there anyone you want to shout out yes 
our line producer, Clara George. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this was her first episode, right, John? I'm yes. not making that up, yeah, right? No, she, was, yeah. she, she came into this season, and um, first episodes of a season are never the smallest episode. They're always too big and unwieldy, and they ask for really weird shit, and there's usually a new set. In this case, there's a huge new set, the Marina's Penthouse. And um, she hit the ground running, and she was amazing. So uh, certainly behind the scenes, she was a key MVP we should be shouting out. Good win. John, John, Hale. what about you? Hale? Hale Hoffman just taking that monster and just running with it. It, <laughs> it was so, it was so hard, I think, and he made it seem so easy. It, it, it just seems like it was made for Hale. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have to say, he makes almost everything you throw at him seem so effortless. It's, yeah. it's really he unfair. Really hard. <laughs> yeah, he, he works really, he works really hard. Yeah. Yeah, and he does. So, and there's not a lot of like um, we don't really talk to him that much. I mean, mm-hmm. we you know, I mean, he makes a lot of really smart decisions that don't require a lot of jig jack. You know, I remember um, I was in New York as they were prepping something like a couple weeks before we started prepping hard prep on the first episode. And I was just texting with him. I, I have a vivid memory of being in line at Starbucks really early in the morning in New York and texting um, with Hale, who had just a couple of very targeted questions mm-hmm. about the references we sent him. Cause we, you know, we said, you know, read this, look at this, just to help just sort of feed the imagination machine. And, um, uh, he didn't even need a phone call. He just texted me a couple little questions. And by the time I had picked up my coffee, I guess the monster had been completely born. Mm. <laughs> he was done, you know, he was just ready to play. That's incredible. <laughs> ready to play. Oh, so creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're getting close to the end. We have episode ratings, but Danny, was there anything else you wanted to ask before we go into that? What is something without giving too many spoilers, like, what are you looking forward to the most for people to see this season? Hmm. Well, there's a lot. There, there, there are a lot of things. Um, but one thing that springs to mind is an, there is an episode mid-season that's got... Um, oh, my God, I can't say anything about it except that Ellipson wrote it. Um, okay, Ellipson wrote and it. And that uh, it ended up, you know... It ended up saying so much of what we believe about the story we're telling. Um, and uh, there's a, I'll say this, you'll know when you see it because um, because it's it's got a certain penny through line hmm. to it. Um, and I'm sorry that that's so vague. I just don't want to give away too many spoilers about the middle of the season. But that that one pops to mind because I was just so delighted with the way, the sort of non-preachy but um, deeply felt way that that episode expresses what we believe about the kind of story we're telling. Hmm. I'm going to ask one last one, too. What are you reading right now? And, John, why don't you start it? Hang on a second. Let's, let's, let's look at my bookshelf. See, what am I reading right now? I am reading the collected stories of Louis Alkenclaus. Who's that? How dare you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll know once you tell me. <laughs> Louis Alkenclaus, um, it, it was, was you know, deceased now, but was um, for 60 years uh, a very erudite, very born to the manner lawyer hmm. in New York City who also wrote about 50 novels sort of in the manner of Henry James and Ethan Edith Wharton that mm. are very much about like mid-century Manhattan society and sort of the mores and the 
kind of loves and disappointments. And uh, it's just a fascinating time capsule mm-hmm. because he really, well, most writers understand, you know, love and art and all the things that interest writers. But Louis Auchincloss understood like trusts, estates, mm-hmm. money passed <laughs> on. Of course you're reading that. <laughs> Louis Auchincloss was an artist who understood how business worked. And I find that really interesting. <laughs> I'm going to be really interested to hear you. I don't want to read it at all, but I definitely want you to tell me about it. <laughs> I actually probably yeah. will read it because uh, Edith Wharton is one of my favorites. Like, I love House of Mirth yeah. and it seems like yeah, that. Yeah, if you like that, like, start with his short stories. <laughs> all right. They're all really, they're all really, really good. Really interesting. He's, a, he's a, just, and he's a, it's, it's interesting to find a guy who is, you know, a great writer, but really understands how a law firm works. <laughs> <laughs> not the bullshit John Grisham way, like how real law and how real business is done in New York. It's, it's fascinating. Um, Sarah, same question for you. And I should have shouted out that this uh, question came from one of our listeners, Alicia. So I'm shouting that out now. But yeah, what are you reading, Sarah? Hi, Alicia. Um, the, I'll tell you the last book I finished and what I'm just getting into. Um, I just finished I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. Hmm. Um, it is terrifying. I don't know what I just read. It starts so normal, and then it goes to really weird, crazy places. I don't want to say anything else about it, except if you like atmospheric horror that then ends up making you question if you even are a person. What is your identity? Who are you? Why are we here? Yeah, it goes there. Um, But it starts real chill, just like she wants to break up with her boyfriend. Anyway, so I just finished that. I'm still processing it. And and I'm getting into um, Play It As It Lays, the Joan Didion. Oh, yeah. Because we're, you know, we're, we are, I think, pretty much officially on hiatus now uh, from magicians. I mean, we, the, the whole season is in the can. We're just finishing up a few little VFX. And I'm actually talking to you from the writer's office of you where we are ah. prepping season two. So there's a bit of a Joan Didion, like, L.A. author through line. So I'm revisiting all of these great um, kind of steamy, amazing Los Angeles writers um, as fuel for that. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Episode is rating, and then we'll be pretty much done. Um, Danny, you first. Scale of 1 to 10. How would you rate this episode? How about you go first? I always go first. <laughs> I make you go first because it's hard. <laughs> um, uh, so the problem is what happens every single season is we, like, give a really high score to the first one, and then we have no ceiling, and it gets better every single episode. But the thing is, I'm, I'm like, I can't. I cannot justify giving this less than an eight. So I'm going to give it an eight and just hope that that leaves me enough room for the rest of the season. Danny, you got to give it like, you got to be, you got to be like, it's, you know, a 3.5. Just, you have to keep us on our toes. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it was such a good episode. It's such a, a good episode to come back to. Um, I would probably give it an eight as well. Like, we we don't like to try it. We try not to rate them too high because I think the worst time we shot ourselves in the foot was season two with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I think we gave the first episode like a 10 because we were like, yeah. oh, shit. There was just such a it was such a big, intense, dramatic moment coming off season one and it was executed mm. so well. And then we saw episode three from season two. And mm-hmm. yeah, we were like fucked immediately. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> I think we need to like get a more intense rubric or something. Yeah, or we should we should do like letter <laughs> grades and then it'll feel like 
I don't know. We'll figure it out someday. <laughs> um, okay, so we would never ask you to rate your an episode of your own show, but um, I will ask... Oh, no. We already asked what you're most excited about in season four. So... I Can I tease you one more thing, though? Yes. When yeah. I, we, yes. We um, just finished working on the finale. I co-wrote it with John. It is, like, easily one of my favorite things we've ever written together. Um, it's also, in, it's in, I don't know, I don't even really know what word to use, John. I mean, like, I kind of want to say it's insane, but that really underplays. We really jump off a fucking cliff <laughs> in a certain way at the end of this season. And, um, and I will also say that, like, they'll deny it, but everybody in post cried. Oh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to set expectations too high. I would rather you assume it will suck and then be pleasantly surprised. But I will say we made people feel things a little bit. <laughs> so you can hang until the finale. <laughs> do you want to hear the, um, do you want to know what the last line is? Yeah. Are you allowed to tell season? us that? <laughs> I'm the, I can do anything I want. I'm a white male. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking do it. <laughs> the last line be careful, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Such I'm gonna have to. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> um, all right, well, I think I think that's all we have. John and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank, thank you, you more. Thank you even more importantly for making this show. It's been a treat to talk to you about it. It's been a treat to watch it for four, for three seasons and now for a fourth. And I just, I never stopped being excited. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank Thanks you for, for having us. Yeah. We yeah. geek out making the show, so it's really, really nice to geek out with people watching the show. That's very cool. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you for watching. And thank you for, uh, for talking to all the folks who work on the show. Oh, yeah. they really have enjoyed it. We we oh, fucking we love, love it. Like seriously, like send us people who more people who we should talk to. We're we're happy to talk to anyone involved in any way. It's just, I think it's so fun to. This is such. This is a show where there's so much thought and so much detail that goes into it that I think everyone involved is doing something epic. And yeah. here's a really epic idea. All right, this is totally free. You don't have to pay for this. <laughs> the next time you interview David Reed. Have him over to your house, serve him hamburgers, and as he's eating it, tell him it's made from bear meat. (laughs) (laughs) Tell him to do that. Now he's a part of you, David. (laughs) He would cry so much. (laughs) He's so fun. (laughs) <laughs> all right on that note listeners thank, thank you. you listeners Thanks, thank you for, <laughs> thank you listeners thank all you right. too for joining us if you're enjoying the podcast you can do us a huge favor by leaving us a review on itunes and of course you can follow us on twitter or facebook at physical kids pod bye hi guys Have thank you evening. bye Mind slide. Be careful, Bob. <laughs> <laughs>